Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. I am standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 49 of Russia's brutal and bloody invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. Welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead. We're live from Western Ukraine. An interpreter held in captivity for, captivity for nine days by the Russians, beaten, tortured, starved, and subjected to a mock execution. A mother raped multiple times by a drunken Russian soldier in the presence of her small child. An elderly couple shot dead by Russian soldiers while trying to escape their village by car. Just hours after President Biden first used the word genocide to describe Russian atrocities in Ukraine, a new report finds, quote, clear patterns of violations of international humanitarian law by Russian forces here. Experts from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or OSCE, say they found credible evidence suggesting violations of, quote, even the most fundamental human rights have been committed. Another horrifying example, dozens of local officials, activists, and journalists being abducted by the Russians and forcibly disappeared. The whereabouts of many of those detained still unknown. The report also cites many well-documented cases of the use of cluster munitions, rockets or bombs that hold dozens or hundreds of smaller bombs inside and are designed to discharge over a wide area, inflicting as much damage as possible. This new video posted to social media shows what appear to be cluster bombs exploding in a civilian area of Kharkiv in the east. You can see at least four explosions, seconds apart, spreading about 90 meters across a roadway and another blast moments later. Farther east, new satellite images show Russian ground forces redeploying and moving into eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region in the southeast, now bracing for a major Russian offensive. The Russian military also threatening today to strike Ukrainian decision-making centers, such as the capital of Kiev. President Biden and Ukraine's President Zelensky spoke today. Biden pledging on that call to send a new round of military assistance to Ukraine to the tune of $800 million. It is not yet clear if Biden's declaration of genocide in Ukraine, which he offered as a personal opinion, not a legal ruling, will trigger any changes to U.S. policy. CNN's Phil Black joins us now live from Kiev. And Phil, I want to start with this new report from the OSCE. The report says violations occurred on the Russian side, but also on the Ukrainian side. What are you learning? Well, Jake, this 110-page report essentially backs up much of what we have been witnessing in this war uh, so far. It has found widespread violations of international human, uh, humanitarian and human rights law. Uh, and indeed, as you've pointed out, lists a number of instances, a, a long list of instances that could uh, it could be considered uh, war crimes. It specifically talks about Russia violating its obligations through its widespread attacks on and disproportionate attacks on a large number of civilian targets and infrastructure and the greater civilian death toll that, that, that those actions have caused. And it also specifically talks about other violations that have taken place behind Russian lines. So killings, uh, torture, disappearances, other degrading and inhuman 
uh, treatment. You're right, it does point out that there were Ukrainian violations, have been Ukrainian violations as well, although it specifically says the Russian violations are of a nature and scale that is much larger. The Ukrainian violations uh, largely relate to the illegal treatment of Russian prisoners of war. This isn't, was not an exhaustive investigation. Time was limited, access on the ground was limited, the Russians didn't cooperate. But it is a report that begins the process of documenting many of the crimes, the inhuman behavior that has taken place in Ukraine in recent weeks, Jack. And Phil, the Russian military today threatened to strike Ukrainian, quote, decision-making centers, including where you are, the capital of Kyiv. How seriously are Ukrainian officials taking that threat? Given everything that Russia has already done in this country, Ukrainian officials have no reason to doubt Russia's will and intent to follow through with that threat. The threat comes and will follow, it says, if Ukraine continues to plan attacks or sabotage against Russian targets on the soil of the Russian Federation. It says it has evidence that Ukraine is continuing uh, to do this. Now, there has been one high-profile example of such an attack. Russia accusing Ukraine of destroying a fuel depot in the city of Belgorod a few weeks ago. At the time, the Ukrainian officials refused to confirm or deny. One theory at the time for Ukraine's reluctance to discuss the details of that alleged attack was the possibility that it could trigger an escalation, that Russia could strike back. Now, the Russian military is saying very publicly, very explicitly, that that is exactly what it will do if Ukraine continues to even think about launching strikes like that on the territory of the Russian Federation, Jack. All right, Phil Black reporting live for us from Kyiv. Thank you so much. The mayor of Mariupol says 180,000 people are waiting to be evacuated from that besieged city. We should note no humanitarian quarters were open today because Russian forces were blocking the evacuation buses. As CNN's Matt Rivers reports for us now, that against all odds, the Ukrainian resistance is putting up a bitter fight for every inch of Mariupol. Weeks after Russia began an offensive bombardment to take the city and still, Ukraine's government says Mariupol has not yet fallen. The key port on the southeast coast of Ukraine, increasingly a symbol of both Ukrainian resistance and Russian military goals. Ukrainian officials are holding up the city as a symbol of a heroic fight, with an aide to President Zelensky saying on Facebook that two different units defending Mariupol have managed to link up and continue their fight. One of those units releasing a message saying they, quote, did not give up their positions. And now there are accusations from the Ukrainians that Russia has used chemical weapons here. The day before yesterday, the Russian troops attempted to strike our city with a so-called chemical attack. They tried to drop a chemical agent on our defenders. The agent did affect our defenders, and there is evidence a number of people living in settlements in the outskirts of Mariupol were also affected. President Zelensky accusing Russia of using, quote, phosphorus bombs and other munitions prohibited by international law. The U.S., as well as CNN teams on the ground, have not yet verified that such an attack did indeed occur. No conclusive imagery has surfaced, and Russia denies even having chemical weapons. But chemical weapons or not, the destruction in Mariupol has been devastating. The mayor says more than 90% of the city's infrastructure has been damaged or destroyed, and officials say Russian forces have cut off crucial supplies, including water and food. We are currently discussing 20 to 22,000 uh, people dead in Mariupol. Meanwhile, Russia is engaged in an intense propaganda campaign, 
saying it is close to capturing what would be its first major Ukrainian city since the war began. As a result of successful offensive actions of the Russian armed forces and the police units of the DPR, 1,026 Ukrainian military personnel of the 36th Marine Brigade voluntarily laid down their arms and surrendered. The Russian military also taking some reporters on a tour of a now-destroyed theater where hundreds of people had been sheltering when it was hit by a Russian airstrike last month, according to Ukrainian officials. You can see for yourself what the situation in the city is. There are a lot of dead people. And for those still alive, a hellish landscape persists. Ukraine's government says about 180,000 people in and around the city still need to be evacuated. So far, many have not been able to do so. And Jake, I think we just need to to highlight what the Ukrainian government is saying. You're talking about an unknown death toll at this point in terms of the exact number, but they're saying thousands and thousands of people have been killed in Mariupol, and they're still really trying to understand the overall scale of what's happening. Yeah, no, it's horrific. And since these humanitarian corridors remain blocked, is there any way to evacuate the 180,000 people still stuck uh, there? In in a in an effort that has any sort of scale? No. I mean, that's the simple answer is no. And, and it's just horrifically unfortunate for the people that are there. Not only is it difficult to get out of that city, but getting to another city, for example, like Saporizhia, there's an increased number of Russian checkpoints that have been set up on the highway between those two cities. So even if people can get out of Mariupol, which is incredibly difficult, just getting to the next city on down the line where you can be safe is also fraught with peril. My Rivers, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss retired Air Force General and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Philip Breedlove. He's also distinguished chair of the Middle East Institute. Uh, General, thanks for joining us. Let's start with these new satellite images showing Russian ground forces redeploying, moving into eastern Ukraine. Armored vehicles, troops with tents and support equipment, personnel carriers, artillery. What do you anticipate is Russia's next move in the east? Well, thanks for having me on. And uh, it, this is a concerning development. Uh, the forces, most of them, are coming out of the north. They took a whipping in the north, and now they're going to learn from that and I think better pre- be prepared. They had some command and control problems. You've heard that that a new commander's been put in charge, and I think that will bring more singular focus to what they're going to do. And finally, uh, You know, now we're going to have armored forces in terrain that is much more friendly to armored forces. And in uh, the northern part of the country, there was a lot of places where things like javelins and in-laws were able to strike at armored vehicles. It's going to be a little harder to get close enough to do that in the south. And this is something we're going to have to watch. So a spokesman for the French military says Putin is preparing for a large-scale offensive to conquer the entire Donbass region. What does that mean for the Ukrainians who live in the Donbass region? Well, if we look at what happened in the north, in those cities in the north, it is not good. If, if the butchery that happened in the north of Ukraine is carried on even more in the south, uh, it's it's not good for those residents. We really may not know what's happened in Mariupol for for some time, but if it's the continued war crimes and butchery of the north, this is not going to be good for the people of Ukraine. President Putin said this week his main goal is to take control of the Donbass. If he does indeed succeed in that goal, do you think he will stop there? No, I do not. 
I think over the last several days, you've started to hear some news stories about the uh, the Nazi uh, influence in Moldova. And I believe that if Mr. Putin is able to have some success in the South and he uh, is able to advance maybe towards Odessa, if not taking Odessa, and he doesn't he isn't opposed by the Western world, then I do not believe we're done in Ukraine. You're referring to the, the propaganda, they say, the Russian propaganda suggesting that Moldova is run by Nazis the same way they say it about Ukraine, which is not true. It's insane. Um, Finland published a, a report today that included an assessment of the country possibly joining the NATO alliance. The report outlines, quote, the most significant effect of its possible NATO membership would be that Finland would be part of NATO's collective defense and be covered by the security guarantees enshrined in Article 5, which is, of course, an attack on one and is an attack on all. How will this be viewed in Moscow, and how do you anticipate Putin would respond? Well, if we remember the two documents Mr. Putin gave us and told us to sign before the war, or there would be other means, we now understand what that means. What he was trying to do was move NATO back and move NATO weapons off of his borders and for sure get America out of those border areas. And now what Finland is proposing will put another strong military on his borders in the NATO camp. And and may I just pay huge compliments to the Finnish military who are extremely compatible with with NATO forces, have exercised with us at incredibly high levels. And this is an army that is prepared to almost immediately match the tactics, techniques, and procedures of NATO. So it would be a great thing for the men and women of NATO and the nations of NATO. And 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 we are also uh, cognizant of a process by which the Finnish people make these decisions, and we respect the way they do it. The Biden administration today promised some 800 million additional dollars in new security assistance to Ukraine. That brings the total aid uh, from the U.S. to more than three billion dollars since President Biden took office. A tremendous, tremendous amount of money. But I also have to ask, is that enough? Well, uh, let's let's say right up front, we are thankful for what America's Congress and America's administration is doing we're thankful for the things they're getting them, but the the measure of merit is not how much money we put in this. The measure of merit is, are we getting them the right things, what they are asking for and what they need? And so we'll take a hard look at this 800 uh, million that is being bought forward. The, the fight in the South is going to be different. It's going to favor armored uh, capabilities. And so are we getting to Ukraine the kind of equipment they need to fight that. Again, in-laws and javelins are always useful, but they're going to be less useful in the South because it is open, more open terrain, which lends itself to the force that that uh, Russia is going to bring to the fight. Former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, retired Air Force General Philip Breedlove, thank you so much, sir. Always good to have you on. There is evidence that Russia's uh, pivot to the east has already started. CNN teams in the region as Ukrainian forces form a new front line. We'll bring you that. Plus, in New York City today, the trail of evidence that helped police track down the man, they say, was behind yesterday's brutal subway attack. Stay with us.
And we're back with our world lead. Putin's troops were not physically nor were they mentally ready for this war, according to a Pentagon official. Now Russia is regrouping and resupplying with a renewed focus on eastern Ukraine. And as CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports for us now, some townspeople in Ukraine are standing their ground and preparing for this new Russian assault. All is not quiet on Ukraine's eastern front. Not far from the town of Barvinkove, Russian mortars warn of what's to come. Ukrainian officials say the offensive in the Donbass region, the eastern part of Ukraine, has begun. Perhaps it has. Or perhaps this is the softening up before the onslaught. Among Ukrainian troops, bravado. Stronger than this. This officer gives a more sober assessment. The Russians are building up for an attack. They're coming and coming and coming, Lieutenant Leonid tells me. We're not in an easy situation. Russian shelling Tuesday killed three people, including a 16-year-old girl, according to the town mayor, who has been urging residents to leave. Not everyone heeds his call. The stubborn few wait for supplies. This is our town, insists Galina. We're staying here. We know our soldiers are protecting us. Yudmila looks to a higher power. We'll pray to God, she says. Maybe he will save us all. 83-year-old Yelizaveta sits outside her home. She, too, is staying put. My son's wife is scared and will probably leave today, she says, but I'm not afraid. And then off she goes on her bicycle, gathering storm, be damned. And we were in Barvinkove for two days, today and yesterday. Yesterday, there was some shelling. Today, there was a lot more. And according to town residents, the intensity is growing every day. Of course, they are anticipating this uh, Russian offensive. And the mayor there and the mayor here in this town of Kramatorsk have the same problem. They're urging everyone to leave now, but many people are not. Jake? Ben, what do you see in terms of preparations for the Russian offensive beyond what you just said? There are intensive preparations ongoing. We've seen a lot of landmines being laid, trenches being dug, uh, more troops and armor heading to the front and behind the front. So certainly the Ukrainians are preparing and preparing fairly intensively for what many people fear is going to be this offensive. And of course, that town, Barvinkove, is really the first stop if the Russians attack from the north. The expectation is it will be a pincer movement. And of course, this city, Kramatorsk, is right in the middle of that. Jake? Ben Wiedemann, thank you so much. Appreciate it. President Biden now using the word genocide to describe Russia's invasion. But that word choice is not sitting well with a loyal U.S. ally. Stay with us.
Continuing with our world lead, there is global reaction today to President Biden for the first time describing what Vladimir Putin and his troops are doing here in Ukraine as genocide. After the president used the word in a speech yesterday, reporters asked President Biden if he meant it. Here is part of his answer. Yes, I called it genocide. The evidence is mounting. It's different than it was last week. The more evidence is coming out of the literally the horrible things that the Russians have done in Ukraine. We're joined now by David Sheffer from 1997 to 2001. He was the first U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues and led the U.S. delegation to the United Nations talks establishing the International Criminal Court. He's also a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ambassador Sheffer, thanks for joining us. So let me put up the United Nations definition of genocide. It includes a, a mental element, an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. And that's coupled with one or more physical elements, killing, causing serious bodily harm or mental harm, deliberately inflicting conditions calculated to bring about a group's physical destruction, preventing births and transferring children to members of another group. So what do you think uh, has Vladimir Putin checked uh, enough boxes here for this to be genocide? He's actually checking all of the boxes, uh, Jake. Um, the evidence is still coming in. Uh, international lawyers, myself, have been for quite a number of days now saying that the red lines of genocide are being approached very, very quickly. You know, first we were able to determine war crimes as, as, a, as a crime by the Russian military, then crimes against humanity because of the widespread and systematic assault on the civilian population. And now, you know, because this is an attack against a protected group under the Genocide Convention, which is the Ukrainian national people, with millions fleeing, um, including a, a clear assault on children and also forcible deportations, you have to start talking about genocide. Now, that doesn't mean that we've all concluded that we know exactly who has the specific intent to commit genocide, but we are seeing the indicators of genocide. And I think President Biden was perfectly in his lane, the right lane as a political leader, to call this out. You know, let me just say, Jake, that under the Genocide Convention, our obligation as a state party is to prevent and punish genocide. It is not possible to prevent genocide unless you call it out early enough to do so. You can't wait five or ten years for a court to say it's genocide. So there is kind of a distinction between a, pol a political judgment on genocide and the ultimate legal judgment on genocide. So let's talk about this intent aspect that you just talked about, because experts, as, as you know mm -hmm. better than I, say that intent is the hardest element of this to prove. It's easy to see what the Russians are doing, yeah. but do they intend to be committing uh, genocide? Biden, President Biden said it's becoming clear that Putin is trying to wipe out even the idea of being Ukrainian. Does that count as intent? It can be an inference of intent, if not a direct statement of intent. I mean, that's what you determine in a tribunal. But I, I must say that when it comes to the law of, of, of genocide, there, there is a, a way to demonstrate that the inferences of intent are demonstrated by the circumstances, including the statements being made by political leaders. You put all of that together and the inference is there, even if you don't have a document that says literally, it is my specific intent to destroy all or part of this group. Obviously, you're not going to have that kind of document. But cases are proven in the court of law with inferences and with other 
you know, statements that get you very close to an expression of specific intent. I think at this moment, so much has been said from Moscow, from the Kremlin, from Mr. Putin himself, that is so self-incriminating that we really should be talking about um, the seriousness of each category of atrocity crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. They're all coming together now. Biden also said he would let the lawyers decide, which seems to suggest the, the U.S. is not ready to, at least as of right now, make a formal declaration of genocide. The U.S. State Department, I think, would do that. What legal obligations would such a declaration trigger uh, for the international community? I mean, I, I'm reminded that it was only last month that the U.S. formally declared that Myanmar's military committed genocide against the Rohingya. I think this, this is sort of a canard, Jake, to say, uh, which is a common argument, that we have to have an official designation by our government of genocide before we fulfill our obligations under the Genocide Convention. Wrong. Uh, because if you wait for that, then you wait for years. You know, we just came out in the U.S. government with a determination of genocide against the Rohingya in, in Myanmar, which was the ethnic cleansing campaign of 2017. That's five years ago. And we just came out with the lawyer's determination that that, too, was genocide. So how do you respond to this in real time if you have to wait for an official designation? Of course, it's very important to get that, and courts will want that. They will look to that as evidence you know, that can be presented in a court of law against a particular individual or in the International Court of Justice against, for example, the country of Myanmar uh, and the Rohingya. But we can't kind of go down these rabbit holes of denying ourselves the ability to enforce the Genocide Convention. Yeah. The worldwide reaction was interesting. Uh, president Zelensky sent out a tweet thanking the president. Uh, Russia, of course, called it unacceptable. French President Emmanuel Macron, who, who is in the middle of a re-election effort, he, he rejected using the term genocide. He said he's He's not sure escalated rhetoric stops the war or rebuilds peace. Um, what did you make of that? Well, with all due respect, I mean, the situation in Ukraine is so unbelievably escalated at this stage. I don't see how you can escalate it further with language which, quite frankly, is fairly accurate. Um, you know, it took us a while to all say, oh, yes, it's war crimes. And then it took us a while to say it's crimes against humanity. Now it's taking us a while to say it's genocide. I always like to say from the very beginning, it's atrocity crimes and you have to respond to it, whether it's a war crime, crime against humanity or genocide. We must respond in order to try to stop it because these are the lives of hundreds of thousands and millions of people at stake. You cannot um, hold hostage effective policymaking with a definitional joust about whether it's genocide or crimes against humanity. The point is, and the French are doing this in NATO, you respond to the atrocity crimes. And what should the response be beyond what we're doing? I mean, NATO and the United States have had a very uh, strong response in terms of economic sanctions, uh, in terms of aid to Ukraine, a new package mm -hmm. announced uh, just today or yesterday uh, of, of economic aid. Um, more I'm guessing needs to be done, including uh, cutting off uh, Russian fuel so that Putin doesn't have money to fund this. But what, what do you recommend? Well, first of all, the Genocide Convention does not require us to do more than what we are doing, which is an enormous amount. And NATO's doing an enormous amount. 
Um, it, there's no clear line drawn between putting boots on the ground and providing munitions and armaments and everything else to the Ukrainian army. So it's a fairly phenomenal response to what's occurring in uh, Ukraine. But I think I would just sum it up. It's a long argument, Jake, but I think I would just sum it up by saying we sort of need to resurrect the concept of a humanitarian intervention under international law and not be strapped to the, to the bench by the UN Charter that requires the Security Council resolution under Chapter 7. When you have this kind of agony going on uh, with millions of people at stake, um, there is a, a rationale uh, for actually responding not only with a humanitarian intervention that could be effective, but one that uh, resurrects within the UN Charter the concept of collective self-defense. Ukraine has the right to call for collective self-defense, and NATO's doing that to some extent. NATO countries, I should say. But, um, you know, at some point you have to determine to what extent is the carnage going to continue without a more uh, robust response on the ground. Yeah. Ambassador David Sheffer, thank you so much for your time and expertise, as always. Ahead from New York, how a single tip helped lead to today's arrest of the man police say was responsible for the horrific New York subway shooting yesterday. Stay with us. And we have some breaking news for you in our national lead. The Brooklyn subway shooting suspect has been captured. Moments ago, we saw the 62-year-old Frank James being transported in police custody. Earlier video captures the moment James was arrested by New York patrol officers in Manhattan's East Village neighborhood. The New York Police Commissioner says the officers were responding to a Crime Stoppers tip and that he was taken without incident. Investigators say James is the gunman who fired 33 shots at morning commuters yesterday around 8.25 a.m. in Brooklyn. Five of the victims were children on their way to school. The motive for the attack has not been officially revealed, but as Shimon's, CNN Shimon's Prokopes reports, police are investigating multiple racist and rambling videos the suspect posted on YouTube, including one in which he discusses his desire to kill. My fellow New Yorkers, we got it. Frank Robert James, the suspected gunman who opened fire on a subway train in Brooklyn Tuesday, now in custody. Patrol officers arresting James walking the streets in New York City's East Village today. Officers, in response to a Crime Stoppers tip, stopped Mr. James at 1.42 p.m. at the corner of St. Mark's Place and First Avenue in Manhattan. He was taken into custody without incident and has been transported to an NYPD facility. We hope this arrest brings some solace to the victims and the people of the city of New York. The 62-year-old talked about violence and mass shootings in multiple rambling videos posted on YouTube, including this one uploaded Monday. I've been through a lot of where I can say I wanted to kill people. I wanted to watch people die right in front of my face immediately. But I thought about the fact that, hey, man, I don't want to go to no prison. In other videos, James said he had PTSD and ranted about race, homelessness, and New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Adams telling CNN today. Why aren't we identifying these dangerous threats? Why aren't we being more, more proactive wait, instead of waiting for this to happen? The videos also giving insight into James' path to Brooklyn, leaving his home in Milwaukee on March 20th. James said he was heading to the, quote, danger zone. He then stopped in Fort Wayne, Pittsburgh, and Newark 
before arriving to Philadelphia on March 25th. Police initially named James a person of interest because they found a credit card and keys to a rented U-Haul van at the scene. Later tracking down the vehicle where sources say it appeared he may have spent the night. James rented the van from this Philadelphia store on Monday. Investigators also linking the gun found at the scene to a purchase by James, sources say. And authorities have tracked the purchase of a gas mask to James through an eBay account. We are now learning more about the victims. I was sitting right next to the shooter. Benkata was shot in the back of his knee, trying to flee the scene. This pregnant lady was yelling, I'm pregnant, help. Everybody was pushing. I'm thinking it's just a smoke bomb. I grabbed her from the I grabbed her from the back so she don't get shot in the back. She was pregnant. And a lot of people kept rushing, and that's when I got shot in the leg. Police say James shot a total of 33 rounds in the crowded car before his gun jammed. Five of the injured were children on their way to school. And Jake, in another bizarre kind of twist here, we're now learning from law enforcement officials that Frank James called in on himself. Officials telling us that crime stop tip that they received that ultimately led to his capture. He called it in himself. That is how police were able to find him. He's expected to be in court either later tonight or tomorrow. He's facing federal charges, Jake. All right, Shimon Prokopes on the scene in Brooklyn. Thanks so much. And just in moments ago, from Michigan, authorities released video of a deadly encounter with a black man shot during a police traffic stop. What investigators are saying about this case, that's next. Breaking news in our national lead now growing tension amid protests and rallies in Grand Rapids, Michigan after the death of Patrick Leoya, a 26-year-old black man shot during a traffic stop nine days ago. Police say Leoya was killed after an officer's gun discharged during a lengthy struggle, but a representative for the family claims he was killed execution style. Moments ago, police released cell phone video of their encounter with Patrick. We want to warn you, the footage is disturbing. Thank you, Jen. How many cars you got going? Omar Jimenez is live for us in Grand Rapids. Omar, uh, you were in the room as police wrapped up the press conference just a short while ago. What are they saying after the release of the footage? Well, Jake, frankly, they're calling this a difficult day. And now leading up to what you just saw play out on your screens there, police said they pulled over this vehicle for mismatched plates, mismatched registration, though they wouldn't say why they were scanning them in the first place. But as soon as Patrick Leoya is pulled over, he's seen outside of the car. There's a discussion. Leoya starts running. The officer tackles him to the ground, and they're really fighting for a matter of minutes at that point. The officer tried to deploy his taser twice over the course of this, and Leoya is seen trying to grab that taser as they're up, they're down, and then they go down for that final time, those moments that you just saw play out. The final words we hear from the officer are drop the taser and then a single gunshot. The officer gets up. Leoya doesn't. Now, the central questions here become what prompted this officer to pull out his weapon and this officer is seen on top of Leoya while he's face down. So I asked the police chief, what was the officer, what is the officer trained to try and do in that situation? Take a listen to what he said. Typically, the, the answer is that you're trying to place them in custody. 
that's it. You're trying to, to uh, secure that individual. Uh, question, the follow-up question I'm sure will be was the use of force and policy, and I'm not going to co comment on that, but the test is going to be whether in a, uh, the view of a reasonable police officer, whether that deadly force was needed to prevent death or great bodily harm to that officer. That's the test which will be used for the policy. And again, the question is what prompted that officer to pull out the gun, and if it was the taser, whether that taser prompted a threat or rose to that threshold of being able to commit great bodily harm or death, Jake. And what's the next step in the process for this officer whose gun discharged, as the police are putting it? Well, we've got a lot of things that are happening moving forward now. One, we're seeing some protests that have developed over the past few days, and the city is preparing to see some of them over the next few days, though police have called for them to be peaceful. Governor Gretchen Whitmer has confirmed that there is an ongoing investigation at the state level, as Michigan State Police typically take over these types of shootings. She also mentioned she and her lieutenant governor have also spoken with the Leoya family, offering their condolences. And on the procedure portion of this, after that independent state investigation is over, it's referred to the county prosecutor for potential charges or back to the police department for disciplinary procedures. But I should mention, he is on paid leave at this point, stripped of police powers, Jake. All right, Omar Jimenez in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thank you so much, appreciate it. Coming up next, more teams on the ground in Eastern Ukraine and forced to retreat as Russian troops almost close them in. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to this special broadcast of The Lead, live from Western Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper, and I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 49 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. We begin this hour with a grim look at the besieged Ukrainian port city of Mariupol. New video shows Russian forces on the street appearing to be well-equipped and well-trained. We should note this is not CNN video. We are not in Mariupol. And now Ukraine says the last two Ukrainian units there are joining forces in hopes to bolster their resistance against the Russian offensive. But the mayor of the town says about 180,000 people are still waiting to flee. And no evacuation quarters were open today as Russian troops allegedly created a dangerous situation along the routes. Meanwhile, in the northeast, new video that appears to show cluster munitions being used in civilian areas around the city of Kharkiv. Rockets or bombs that hold dozens or hundreds of smaller bombs inside designed to discharge over a wide area, inflicting as much damage as possible. The United Nations says such attacks may be a war crime. This all comes on the heels of a new report out today from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which says Russia has committed war crimes and broken international law by deliberately targeting civilians in Mariupol, specifically those who ordered attacks on a maternity hospital and attacks on a theater. Let's get right to CNN's Fred Pleitkin live in Kiev, just about 320 miles east of here. And Fred, let's start there with the cluster munitions. What's happening in Kharkiv and what do you make of these cluster bombs? Well, Kharkiv, uh, that uh, video that you were just rolling there certainly seems to very strongly indicate that those were cluster munitions uh, that were used there just from the way uh, that those impacts were going uh, and from the way those small explosions were happening. And, you know, one of the things uh, that the Ukrainians are saying, they say that a lot of the times those cluster munitions are either airdropped from planes and bombs or they're shot by artillery. And there's specifically one uh, artillery rocket system that's used for that called the Uragan. And of course, in the early stages of this war, I was on the Russian side in the city of Belgorod, which is right across from Kharkiv. 
And the main artillery rocket system that the Russians were using there was the uh, Uragan multiple rocket launching system. So the Ukrainians are saying that's one of the ways that these things are delivered. And certainly they're a big problem in the Kharkiv area because especially there, the outskirts of the city, civilian areas are being shelled. But we've also been on the ground here around the Kiev area and we spoke to some explosive ordnance disposal specialists and they told us also they are finding a lot of cluster submunitions, as they're called, which haven't exploded uh, yet. And the uh, Ukrainians here also saying that in some of the cases they were airdropped, in some cases they were shot by rockets. But they also say these, are, these uh, submunitions are a big problem for civilians even after the Russian forces were driven out of some area because they're so dangerous for people on the ground who might touch them, set off an explosion, and come to serious bodily harm and even death, Jake. So, Fred, in the south, Mariupol's mayor says there are nearly 200,000 people waiting to be evacuated, but the Russians wouldn't allow evacuation quarters to open today. How bad has the situation in Mariupol gotten? Well, from what we're hearing from the authorities there, it's absolutely awful. People there obviously don't have enough to eat. They, uh, they don't have a, any sort of medical attention. You were showing that video. Once again, we have to always point out we're not on the ground in Mariupol. We can't independently verify a lot of the things that are happening there. But of course, it is still a city that is very much uh, besieged and where the people are living in very dire conditions. And, you know, we've seen uh, that drone footage of a lot of those apartment blocks, huge buildings that have been absolutely destroyed. Right now on our screens, we see video of some of the fighting that's apparently still going on there. From what we're hearing from the Ukrainian forces, their main two groups that are still in that city and trying to defend that city have now consolidated their forces. It was a Marine battalion from the Ukrainian military and then also another battalion called the Azov Battalion that are in a steel factory, gigantic steel factory that's there. They are apparently still holding out and have managed to link up. Some of the Marine forces, though, have uh, since then surrendered. Uh, the, uh, the Russians say and the Ukrainians, that battalion now has pretty much confirmed that as well. But it's a dire situation there. And, you know, one of the big issues is that 90% of that city has been destroyed or has been damaged of the buildings there, and at least 40% beyond any sort of repair. So Mariupol, even if the Russians manage to drive those Ukrainian forces out, the so-called prize that they have is nothing but a bunch of rubble, Jake. Fred Biken live in Kiev for us this evening. Thank you so much. While Russian forces continue to prepare for a major offensive in the Donbass region in the southeast, Kharkiv, which is a city in the northeast, continues to see increased shelling. CNN's Nimal Bagger was in the residential district of Saltivka when incoming rounds intensified and the team was told to move to a safer position. Desolate, bare, lifeless. This is what it looks like after weeks of relentless Russian shelling. Saltivka the most densely populated district in Kharkiv. It's being bombed day after day, night after night. There are very few people left, the elderly mostly. One man stayed behind to keep his mother safe. Igor says that he lives on the 16th floor of one of these buildings with his mother. He says his mother is deeply religious and deeply committed to staying here, even though they're almost entirely surrounded. And she won't leave, so he won't leave. But this is a front line under renewed pressure. The Russians are pushing hard. That is so close. Those are Russian positions. They're shelling towards us. We are just over a mile away from the Russian forces. 
This is their route into Kharkiv and then on into Ukraine. For now, this is the front line. That could change at any moment now. They are trying as hard as they can to push that front line inwards. The soldiers want to show us more evidence of the heavy bombardment. The soldiers want us to move very quickly because Russian snipers are operating in this area. We've got to move. The rumble you hear is the constant shelling. The shelling's just been absolutely relentless from the moment that we've arrived, we've been hearing it. We have to be careful where we step because the Russians are also dispersing mines from the rockets that they're sending over into here. The shelling has intensified over the last few days. Regional officials told CNN this is evidence of the renewed Russian military push. Yeah, let's go. So from where we are, we're pretty much surrounded by Russian troops on three sides. Tens of thousands of Russian troops are believed to be amassing to come into Kharkiv, to come into Ukraine from this direction. We've got to move. The soldiers wanted us out of there. It was becoming too intense. Just 30 minutes later, we saw why. This warehouse is in the south of Soltivka. It took a direct hit. This is an area that, after the initial aborted invasion, has been beyond the reach of Russian ground troops. But now, once again, nowhere is safe. The reason we're coming to you from indoors like this with limited lighting is because those strikes have continued to intensify. It's something like a minute, a minute, and a bit between airstrikes we've been counting. And Ukrainian officials say that as far as they're concerned, this is de facto an offensive on this side of Ukraine that has already begun anew, Jake. Nima Albagar with some incredibly courageous reporting. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. In the United States, President Biden spoke to Ukraine's President Zelensky for nearly an hour, we were told, promising an additional $800 million worth of weapons and ammunition and other security assistance from the U.S. that would bring the total amount of military assistance the U.S. has provided to Ukraine to $3 billion. CNN's MJ Lee is at the White House. MJ, what can you tell us about this new security package? Yeah, Jake, $800 million in additional military aid to Ukraine. And you uh, mentioned important context there that that brings the total assistance from the U.S. to Ukraine to three more than uh, $3 billion. And all of that includes uh, artillery systems, artillery rounds, uh, armored personnel carriers, and also the transfer of new helicopters to Ukraine. Now, there had been some questions about wh- whether uh, these MI-17 helicopters would be included And what we are told now is that Ukrainian President Zelensky had told President Biden that they were needed, that they were necessary when the two leaders spoke earlier today. And so that's why they ended up being included. Now, as for the transfer of these helicopters, those details are still being figured out. But what the Pentagon has made clear is that U.S. pilots would not be taking them physically into Ukraine, Jake. MJ, for the first time, Biden yesterday called Russia's atrocities in Ukraine, quote, genocide. He acknowledged that this isn't a legal declaration. But you asked the White House about Biden uh, more than once making comments that aren't official U.S. policy. Uh, What did uh, Press Secretary Jen have to say about that? 
Yeah, you're right. This was not the first time that President Biden uh, made comments about the war that got ahead of U.S. policy or were separate from sort of the legal uh, determination, including when he said that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal, uh, when he said that Putin cannot remain in power. And then, of course, yesterday uh, saying that the situation in Ukraine amounts to genocide. And the question I asked White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is, does this signal that there is an asterisk next to President Biden's comments whenever he speaks like this, here's part of what she said. When the president ran, uh, he promised the American people he would uh, shoot from the shoulder, is his phrase, that he often uses, and tell it to them straight. And his comments yesterday, not once, but twice, and on war crimes are, are ex an exact reflection of that. What is unquestionable is what we're seeing is horrific, the targeting of civilians, of hospitals, of, of, of even kids. Um, and um, and it, the president was calling it like he, see, uh, like he sees it, and that's what he does. No question that world leaders have certainly taken note, including French President Emmanuel Macron, who said he saw this language as an escalation in rhetoric that he doesn't think is helpful in trying to stop the war. Uh, just a reminder that the wards of the U.S. president, of course, carry immense weight, especially when the stakes are so high. Jake. CNN's MJ Lee, live at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, switching sides. He used to be a Russian insider. Uh, but now he's fighting with Ukrainian soldiers. Plus, as Russia continues to bombard this country, the staggering cost to rebuild. Where to even begin? Stay with us. Among the thousands of fighters in Ukraine are Russian dissidents living in exile, watching as more civilians die from this senseless, unprovoked war of President Putin's. Our next guest is such a dissident. He was a member of the Russian parliament, or Duma, from 2007 to 2016, and the only member to vote against annexing Crimea in 2014. Ilya Ponomarev joins us now live from Kiev. He's been fighting alongside Ukrainian forces. Ilya, uh, you've been living in Ukraine since 2016. How did you end up fighting with Ukrainian troops? Uh, what else could I uh, do? under those circumstances. You know, when uh, Putin forces were advancing, we needed to uh, defend uh, the country, we needed to defend the capital, uh, we needed to defend, uh, you know, sorry for saying this, but uh, the humanity and, uh, and Europe. Yeah. Do you worry about Russian forces retaliating against you? Do you, do you worry about being targeted or what might happen if they capture you? I was uh, on their hit list. I was informed about this uh, well beforehand. And uh, many people, for example, in the United States, they were giving me a word of caution that I should evacuate myself and my family and uh, everybody. Um, but uh, that's that's not in my habit. I, uh, that was not my purpose of being in, in Ukraine in the very first place. I, uh, I didn't want uh, to have a quiet life. I wanted to have an efficient life. And I wanted to fight against Putinism. And I'm sure that we will prevail. You've said that this war is a battle against Putin. And you, you believe his days in power are numbered. Why? Uh, because no dictator can survive after losing the war. And he has no way how he can win the war. Uh, he is losing it right now. He would try to uh, claim a certain victory, imaginary victory, 
on the May 9th. I'm, I'm absolutely certain about this, but uh, the reality is that he's losing the war. And uh, I think that the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian people would not stop before Ukraine's territory would be free. And it will. I'm sure you've heard these um, intercepts that German intelligence got hold of, these radio transmissions of Russian troops uh, discussing killing and raping Ukrainian civilians. Uh, Ukrainian officials say nearly 200 children have been killed since the war began. What do you make of the way Russian forces have behaved in this war? They want to spread terror. Um, they hoping that uh, the Ukrainian population, the ordinary Ukrainians, would actually rebel against uh, their own leadership to stop the war. But I think that we are way beyond that, and uh, the Ukrainian nation is uh, united like never before. I think that uh, those guys in Russia, uh, and especially in Kremlin, they do not understand uh, the state of the current uh, Ukrainian nation. Their analytics is lousy, and uh, their generals are all wrong. And they are experiencing all those uh, defeats in, in Ukraine because they do not understand what's actually happening inside the country. When you look at the behavior of Russian troops and these uh, atrocities, war crimes, crimes against humanity, etc., do you think that they've been ordered to commit atrocities like this, to terrorize the Ukrainian people? Do you think it's the result of years and years of just hideous propaganda about the Ukrainian people spewed by the Kremlin? How do you explain it? I think that none of the above. Uh, firstly, uh, if we remember not so distant past uh, Chechen war, it was exactly the same. And I think that the root of the uh, problem is very simple. When you are fighting against the nation, you're, you're not fighting against the uh, foreign army, a certain military force. You are fighting against the nation. And uh, then uh, the soldiers of the invading army, they understand that the death is coming to them from everywhere. And they are start, uh, starting to revenge on everyone including the civilians, including women, and including, unfortunately, even children. What do Ukrainian forces need right now? Well, obviously, we need one simple thing. We need clear skies. Uh, because uh, the Ukrainian army can defend itself, can defend the country very efficiently, as everybody saw. But it cannot defend civilians, because... Uh, Putin is giving orders to shell the cities, as your own correspondents just experienced in uh, Kharkiv. Uh, they are uh, really demolishing um, the uh, residential quarters of just normal, peaceful uh, cities of uh, Ukraine. And uh, also, uh, Ukrainian military cannot advance, because as soon as they are getting uh, a group of tanks, for example, an artillery group and whatever, they would be immediately attack, uh, attacked from the above. And uh, so that, that doesn't make any, any military sense uh, to do it. So they can uh, continue the uh, partisan war, the guerrilla war, but uh, they cannot uh, militarily advance. I think that as soon as the skies would be clear, 
as soon as there would be a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And I think that you guys would mature to understanding that uh, it's needed. You, you, NATO, you, the West, you will not be able to hide from this war. It would knock on your own doors, inevitably, because Putin would not stop. So at the end of the day, you will introduce the no-fly zone. And then Ukraine would be liberated, and then Putin soon would be removed from his post in Kremlin. Ilya Ponomarov, uh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, a man who witnessed that horrific train station attack in eastern Ukraine uh, in Kromatorsk. He tells us what he saw and shares his suspicions about what he thinks may have led up to that strike. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead. Nearly 200 Ukrainian children's lives have been ruthlessly cut short by Putin's war here, according to Ukrainian prosecutors' latest count, though that number is almost certainly much, much higher. At least five of those kids died the day a Russian missile strike hit a railway station in Kramatorsk, where hundreds of civilians were waiting to be evacuated. We caught up with an emergency medical coordinator in that town who ran to the station after hearing the explosion to find unspeakable horror we want to warn our viewers, some of these are disturbing images. The call came Friday morning from the mayor of Kramatorsk. Something had happened at the train station. Come immediately. Vyacheslav Zaporizets had heard the explosion. He ran right there. There were bodies that were torn into pieces. 57 killed. More than 100 wounded. There was a lot of blood puddles of blood. It was easy to track how many people moved by the traces of blood on the ground. I saw a lot of elderly people, mostly women, children, and very young people that are very simple people that do not have their own vehicles. It was basically the last wave of evacuation. Before the war, Zaporizhets was a construction engineer in Kyiv. Now he spends his days driving around Ukraine arranging medical transport for people in towns being besieged. Everyone was worried about Kyiv and the possible attacks on Kyiv. But I think everyone understands that these small cities, like Kramantorsk, they are in danger even more. The evacuation is ongoing, and they can be targeted. We caught up with him as he rode from one town to another. The train was supposed to leave the Kramatorsk station at 9 that morning, but it was delayed. On a beautiful spring day, people started coming to the station around 10. He suspects an informant told the Russians when to strike for maximum civilian casualties. I believe there was somebody, a saboteur or a person who exactly chose the right time when most of the people were outside, and there was a crowd already gathering who might have given the command to fire the missile. Seeing all these wounded people for the last month and a half has been devastating. You've been witnessing this now for a month and a half. What has been your emotional response? I had a 15-minute chat with the psychologist, and it was the first time I felt some ease. But it's not over. A front-row seat to what the Russians are doing. From what I've witnessed and seen, I can say I realize it's not war. It's pure terrorism. Pure terrorism. The Kramatorsk mayor said as many as 4,000 people were at that train station when the Russian missile struck. 
Among all these scenes of death and destruction, what recovery and rebuilding might look like for Ukraine and how long that might take, we'll discuss next. Welcome back. We're live in Lviv. Parts of Ukraine have been ravaged, if not completely decimated, by weeks of Russian occupation and more. Just look at these before and after pictures from what only weeks ago were beautiful, thriving places. This country has suffered more than $100 billion in estimated damage to its infrastructure. Roads, bridges, water, electric systems. That's according to a United Nations Development Agency report that's nearly a month old. The damage has been growing seemingly every day. Somehow, someway, someone is going to have to face the task of rebuilding Ukraine. Let's discuss that with Volodymyr Omelon. He was Ukraine's Minister of Infrastructure from 2016 to 2019. He's now joined Ukraine's Territorial Defense Forces. First of all, thanks so much for joining us. What is the condition of things where you are? Um, good evening, Jake. Uh, we are in Kiev, so we are much safer right now than we used to be uh, two weeks ago, but still under danger because today Ministry of Defense of Russia announced another missile strike uh, hitting at Kiev. Aside from needing Russian forces to go away, that's obviously problem number one. What is needed most right now in Ukrainian cities? You know, when Russia realized that Ukraine will never surrender, they trying right, right now to turn Ukraine into the country of debt. So they simply destroy everything, starting with civilian and ending with infrastructure. Most industries are badly heated and destroyed. And definitely we do realize so that right now it's not the question of rebuilding Ukraine, but building from the ground zero, unfortunately. But it's also a great chance to build it right if we plan it right and we will have a vision what should be done with Ukraine in 21st century. What do you think when the Russians have, have gone and there is peace, what do you think will, will come first when it is time to rebuild? Streets, buildings, water and electricity grids, everything at once? I would uh, split it in two phases. First of all, we should somehow accommodate those million uh, replaced uh, persons. And it's a huge problem right now because cities they used to live are fully destroyed. And uh, we should pre provide them with some temporary housing and uh, work uh, places. And second issue, we should have a good or even great team of visionaries to uh, develop a plan how to build new Ukraine. Because I'm, as a former minister, I perfectly know that if you have good planning and good governance, you will have a great result. But if you start with some uh, ideas without planning them, it's a great failure. So right now for, for us, uh, it's very important to identify the source of financing. In my opinion, it should be a reparation coming from Russia main source, and secondly, to have a good team on board in Ukraine to plan everything right and to establish a right, rightly functioning uh, international uh, fund for rebuilding Ukraine. I met a, a, an internally displaced kid uh, a few days ago, um, 18 years old, and he was from the Donbass region, and his town, the, par the town where his parents live, had been taken over by Russians. And 
He said not only is he not able to, to get back to see them because he doesn't have the proper paperwork, um, but he's not able to call them because the Russians have shut down the cell phone tower. So there's no communication going on. I, is that a common tactic of the Russians? Yes, and we uh, do understand they, that they do more. Because uh, just recently we got news that many Ukrainians are simply uh, taken away from Mariupol and other places which are under Russian occupation. And those people, due to uh, traditions of Stalin and uh, Soviet Union, are taken to Siberia, to Far East, without any communication and without any uh, even uh, request, do you want to, tra uh, to travel to Siberia in minus 20? So it's a typical problem right now that many families are split. Uh, kids do not know even are their parents alive, and parents do not know the destinies of, the, of those kids. I personally know a lot of stories from Mariupol when kids were taken in the streets just to rescue their lives. Some of them are in Western Ukraine right now. Some of them uh, left for European Union, but problem remains. Because those families which were split should reunite if they are alive. And definitely many families, mainly women and kids, will come back from European Union to Ukraine. How worried are you, Volodymyr, that there are f more than 4 million Ukrainians have fled the country? Uh, I think it's about 11 million uh, have been internally displaced within Ukraine. How worried are you about Ukrainians not coming back just because so many parts of the country, whether it's Kharkiv or parts of Donbass or Mariupol, that it's just so destroyed, it's just going to be, it's going to take so long to go back to any semblance of normal? We do understand that to rebuild any city, it will take between five and ten years. If we talk about normal city to live and to work and to enjoy uh, the environment. Uh, but if we talk about this particular situation, first of all, war should uh, stop. And then secondly, definitely we will be able to uh, return our families from, from the West. And I believe that 90% of them will come back because men are still here fighting for Ukraine. And uh, mainly we talk about uh, kids and uh, women with, with them. Definitely, it's a huge, huge risk for them to come back right, right now. And we also urge them not to do so, even that Kyiv is liberated from Russian troops, but danger is still present. So I, I know uh, that you talked about the need for Russians to pay reparations for all the destruction that they have wreaked on your country. But assuming that they don't, um, where do you think the money should come from? Uh, they should. There is no word don't for them. Because it's not only about Ukraine and Russia, it's about the world to uh, teach a lesson that you cannot occupy any other country. In case of Russia, West has already frozen more than uh, 700 billion Russian dollars, uh, US dollars, but uh, Russia owned uh, in the banks and assets in the West. So I think it's a good source uh, for this fund to, to rebuild Ukraine. Uh, definitely, we should find a quasi-political and legal decision how those frozen money should be converted into confiscated ones and then directed to the fund. But it's possible to do. 
And I believe that yeah. another issue for us to discuss and to achieve what what will come next, because one thing is to rebuild and then to preserve and to make it secure. And the only key to that is Ukraine becoming member of United uh, of European Union and NATO. Yeah. Former uh, Infrastructure Minister Volodymyr Omelon, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. From the U.S. today, beyond the recommendations, the first real data that shows why certain groups should definitively get a second booster shot. Stay with us. In our health lead, the number of COVID deaths per day in the United States dropped sharply in recent months. Right now, it's about... 527 per day, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. Now, sadly, that does not change the enormous loss of life in the U.S. For the first time, the CDC forecast predicts one million Americans will have died because of COVID by early May. One million. But we do know that the vaccine dramatically reduces the risk of death. And a brand new study out of Israel shows the short-term impact of getting another shot for older adults. Joining us now to discuss CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, good to see you. So you dove into this new data on this additional, the second booster shot. What does the data tell us? What do you say uh, for older adults? Should they get that fourth shot? I, I think what this data shows us is that you're over the age of 60, and it's been at least four months since you had your third shot. Getting another shot could offer some benefit. But I, but I want to, you know, I, dived in, I dove into this data, and I want to, explain this and and make clear that if you've had three shots, you're still really well protected. If you looked at the entire population of people in the study who did have severe outcomes requiring hospitalization, less than 1% of them were in people who had at least three shots. So the question is, if you add the fourth shot, how much of an incremental benefit do you get? Can take a look at the numbers here. Uh, What you find is that, uh, again, fourth shot compared to three shots. You got uh, infection, a benefit of about 45%. Symptomatic infection, there was a 55% benefit. Hospitalization, 68%. And death, 74% uh, effective uh, if you got that fourth shot as compared to the third shot. But I think the, the real headline here, Jake, is, is twofold. One is that three shots are really still very protective against getting very sick from this. And when you looked at the data out of Israel, the people who were getting fourth shots were the people who were the most at risk, right? So it was actually a segmented part of the population. So when you put it all together, uh, if, if, you're, if you're someone who's at high risk because of age in particular, getting that four shot would give you at least temporary benefit. You know, this, this study only went out about a month. So it's not clear how much longer it would last than that. The Transportation Safety Administration, the TSA, is going to extend the federal mask mandate uh, on planes, trains, and buses, an official telling CNN. They're doing this so they can gather more data about Mm -hmm. the BA2 variant. Uh, Was this the right move? I know a lot of people are very annoyed by it. Well, Jake, I mean, you know, the numbers have come down, as you showed. uh, uh, But, you know, you're still having 500-some people who are dying every day, and the number of infections has started to maybe tick back up a bit. So I think that that's the concerning thing. As we've learned over the last couple of years, hospitalizations and deaths are still lagging indicators. So, so far, if you look at what's happening in the United States and you look at other countries around the world, you know, hospitalizations have not come up as much as they have in the past, but it's a question of are, are they still going to come up over time? 
I mean, we're, this is, we're not in an endemic phase yet of things. I think people keep thinking about that. If people say, hey, look, flu's endemic. 60,000 people could die a year of flu. We call that endemic. 500 people dying a day means close to 200,000 people would die of this. So my point is, Jake, we're probably not at that phase where we can necessarily pull back those measures, especially if we don't know just how much of an impact this BA2 is going to have overall on hospitalizations. Let me show you the overall numbers. I mean, you, you, you mentioned that they've, they've come down. Cases have ticked up a little bit, 38,000 hospitalizations, 14,000 still. And again, deaths, 527. If that was the first number you saw, uh, you know, with this pandemic in terms of deaths per day, that would be astounding compared to what it was. It's a lot lower, but we got to see what happens over the next several weeks. Uh, quickly, I want to ask you about the latest data on drug overdoses in the U.S. because the new CDC data shows the rise in overdose deaths reached another record high, jumping 16 yeah. percent over the 12-month period ending November 2021. What's driving this? This is, uh, this is really interesting. I mean, we were starting to make some strides, Jake, uh, you know, going into the pandemic. The numbers obviously have increased. When you really dissect these numbers, you find something I think that's important and that is it's not necessarily that drug use has gone up leading to these overdoses. It's a type of drugs. I mean, fentanyl and tainted fentanyl, that seems to be the biggest problem. And you're seeing those numbers go up uh, even more so in adolescents and, and among the, uh, the black American community. Yeah, we've covered this before. People taking pills that they think are just herb pills and they've been laced with fentanyl and they, they die uh, 20 years old. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Next, from the U.S., from the Gulf Coast to the Great Lakes, the severe storms firing up right now, prompting a chance for tornadoes. Stay with us. Turning to our national lead, 100 million Americans from the Gulf Coast to the Great Lakes are under threat for severe storms today with a menacing combination of damaging winds, strong tornadoes, and giant hail. Tornadoes left an eight-mile-long trail of destruction in central Texas last night. Twenty-three people were hurt. A county official saying it is amazing no one was killed. Let's bring in meteorologist Tom Sater. Tom, there are several areas of concern at this hour. Tell us. You know, Jake, this is the fourth week in a row that we've had a multi-day severe weather outbreak. Last month, the month of March, 219 tornadoes, an all-time record. And here we are in April. But this week, it's a little different. We have more extremes, severe weather blizzard conditions, and a fire risk. And I want to start back behind the front because yesterday, wildfires kicking up in this tender, dry drought conditions here. We had 150 homes in New Mexico scorched. They had evacuated an elementary school, large fire in Plano, Texas. And when you look at the tornado activity from eastern Texas where they're getting the rain, not west, and went all the way up to areas of around Iowa. And now it's making its way eastward. Today's threat, level four out of five, right along the Mississippi River from northeastern areas of Louisiana up to the boot heel of Missouri, southern Illinois, but it extends more than that. Numerous lightning strikes. This is bad alone. We've got straight line winds that could do damage and they're blowing up to hurricane force winds. Now, I want to take you back behind the front because it's a clash of the cold air and the warm air. Look at this. Blizzard conditions. They had two to three feet of snow, Montana into North Dakota. It is snowing in Iowa where they had tornadoes yesterday. Lincoln, Nebraska was at 91 at 5 p.m. Yesterday, they were down to 31 this morning. Tornado watches in red extend into the evening. These will also be extended to the east. Now, we break down a few tornadoes for you. Areas of around Louisiana moving in toward northern and Mississippi, north central area. There's Pine Bluff, another one. We had a funnel cloud. We've got video of that near the Memphis area. Straight line winds 
there. More tornado warnings now south of Paducah. Again, these are not going to be the strongest tornadoes, but at any point we could get them. Now, tomorrow it moves to the east coast, but it's only a level two out of five, but it's a larger populated region. It's Philadelphia. It's Newark. It's New York City. So again, for the fourth day in a row, it makes its way eastward. It's going to be a violent evening. And as these happen overnight, the best thing I can tell everyone, make sure on your phones that you have the emergency alerts turned on. Call your loved ones and have a plan. Flooding will be a problem as well. It'll be nice to get this one over with, Jake. Tom Sater, thank you so much for that important update. In our sports lead, she is in a league of her own. No woman head coached on the field in a regular season Major League Baseball game until last night. Alyssa Knack, an assistant coach for the San Francisco Giants, made history after first base coach Antoine Richardson was ejected from the game. Now, opportunity strikes in strange ways, and Knacken was certainly ready for it. Pulling on a number 92 jersey and a helmet, she swooped in as first base coach. The Giants were sure to recognize the moment. That's first baseman Darren Roof giving Knacken a fist bump and even a player from the opposing team, stuck out his hand to congratulate her. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. All two hours sitting right there for you. I'm going to be back tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight with more from Lviv and our team of courageous reporters on the front line of this bloody invasion. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.